listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com. Well, good morning and praise God. He's risen. He's risen indeed, and I remind uh, my my congregation. My name is Ryan Tipton. I'm the pastor of Ecclesia. Thank you, brother. Um, and uh, Christmas and Easter, uh, we come together uh, with Sovereign Hope Church. Um, Adam and I work together, and we have a kindred spirit with this church. We love you guys. And if you're a visitor today, we're just so uh, very glad that you are here today, um, uh, being here and and celebrating. Uh, the greatest victory in the history of spirituality, uh, and that's the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as you are here today, you stand in great tradition, ancient tradition, um, uh, and that ancient tradition was founded when Jesus, before he died on Friday, on Thursday, at the Last Supper, where he'd be dead in 24 hours, uh, modeled for us what church would look like in resurrection celebration every Sunday morning, consequently. And with them, that Thursday evening, he said, he modeled for us song, sermon, and sacrament. And that's what you're doing today, right? You're, you're singing to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're singing to your own heart, which we'll talk about in a moment. You're also singing to one another, which they did that day. And, and then there was a sermon preached. Jesus taught them. You can find the manuscript in, in, in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and then begins to pray in, in chapter 17. So you're, you're, you're a part of history, um, and truth told, it's, it's not just this day. Every resurrection day since, every Sunday since is a resurrection. That's the reason we come to church on Sunday. It's the reason we come to church in the morning is because of the resurrection. Um, and in a day where truth increasingly is being forfeited and people are not sure what they believe anymore, I will just echo what Tyson said, and that is if you don't believe in the resurrection, you can't be a Christian. If you don't believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then you cannot be a Christian. When I was attending the London School of Theology many years ago, um, there, our most liberal professor, uh, who we just, you know, he just kept on and on and on. We just thought he's not actually here to teach us Christianity. He's here to undo our faith. Like, like that's all he's here to do, you know. And so finally, at the end of it, someone had the courage uh, in our program to speak up one day and speak to him and said, Dr. Sheriffs, uh, which we aren't, weren't allowed to call them by their last name, so it was Derek. Um, so Derek, tell us what you do believe. <laughs> Since we know everything that you don't, tell us what you do. And he said, I believe in the historical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the reason I'm a Christian. So in other words, he could strip, you know, he felt like he could strip a lot of other things away, but there's one thing that he knew he couldn't strip away, right? And that was fundamentally that he had to believe in the historical uh resurrection of God himself in Jesus Christ. And that's what you're here to celebrate today. And of course, what we're going to try to figure out is why is that at all consequential to you? What, what does truth 
in a day where experience is king, what does objective truth have to do to, uh, with you? And of course, we turn to the Bible there. Um, Adam's going to be preaching on the second part of this text, and we're sharing Acts chapter 2 today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, we'll be preaching together verses 22 through 41. I'll grab verses 22 to 31, and he'll be preaching verses 32 to um, 41. Um, I only have 15 more minutes, so we're going to have to pray for another miracle. Praise be to God. Uh, here we go. We're going to read this to you. The most beneficial thing we can do for you, because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God, is to read the Bible to you. Okay? That's the most beneficial thing that we can do. Okay? So here we go. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 31. These are the words of God. Men of Israel, Peter is speaking, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, Acts 2.24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said, concerning him. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, it's the place of the dead, uh, or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 28, for you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence, brothers. And of course, Peter stops quoting the Old Testament, which he's quoting in Psalm chapter 16. He stops his quotation, and then he turns to them and he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. This is Peter talking 2,000 years ago. And his tomb is with us to this day. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Let's pray for God to bless the reading of his word. God, we thank you for your word, for the gift of it. God, we ask for forgiveness of sins. We pray as Christians that you would make us today the believer, believing believers and the repenting repenters that you have um, made us as we are born again. God, we pray that your word would be effectual, would be used by the Holy Spirit to change our minds and to help us repent and believe properly. God, help us to reorient our minds away from things that aren't true today and help us to think rightly not only about us, but about the world and most, mostly about who you are. Lord, we want to make much of you today. We thank you, God, for making us, sustaining us, saving us. And now we pray that you would teach us, Lord, this hour. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a sermon. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, there are 15 sermons in the narrative of Acts. 15. This is one. Uh, James, brother of Jesus, uh, 
teaches or preaches one. Stephen at his death, uh, before his death, preaches one. Peter preaches eight. Paul preaches the rest. These are 15 sermons. A wonderful, wonderful book of the early church getting started here. So, so Peter's preaching, right? And remember, uh, Peter is an uneducated, untrained fisherman whose only formal theological training is a thousand days or three years with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you follow the narrative, you know that I mean, he, 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 he forsakes him. He talks all the time uh, about not knowing things but because you hear sort of what he believes when it comes out too quickly uh, there, there of his mouth. And so, uh, but, but something has happened. But Peter's received the Holy Spirit. He's been endowed with power from on high, which is the, the reception of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said would come. The same Holy Spirit that, that's in you today. If, if you're a Christian, uh, there is no shrine or temple for you to go to uh, that is the left, right? Uh, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians chapter six, verses 19 through 20. And the Holy Spirit helps you with all types of things. Well, he's teaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like you live and obey Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit or convicted of sin. All that comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been sent. Jesus promised, as you know, he makes good on his promise. Now, now Peter's preaching. So what we're going to do really briefly, and it's going to be really brief. We're just going to look at his sermon and just break it down into, in this section, three different sections. And this is, this is the application for you today. And I really think it's the principle as well. Uh, Pete, Peter is preaching something that he he, he believes. And of course, he can't preach something he doesn't believe, right? Um, we talk all of the time uh, about the spiritual discipline of preaching to oneself and, and my people know this well enough, so all of you need to hear very clearly, all of us are preachers, uh, namely to oneself, right? And, and I don't know about you, but a lot of the times I'm not teaching and preaching the right things to my heart. Does that make sense? So I would say, and just pastorally and personally, a prayer and preaching to oneself are the most important spiritual disciplines, right? So the question today is, what is people? Peter preaching to these people, okay? What has he consequently had to preach to his own heart because he knows it? And then what are you preaching to yourself today? And how do these things come in contrast to and with one another? First things first, he's preaching the gospel. If you're taking notes, verses 22 through 24 is he's preaching to himself the gospel, right? Uh, And here's the thing, Peter knows the gospel, right? And he's preaching the gospel to these people. But later, and our church is currently going through first and second Peter, now we're in second Peter. Um, Peter, as an old man, is now writing first and second Peter. We just went through a couple of weeks ago about he was talking to the people in Asia Minor about the fact that they have gospel amnesia. They've forgotten the gospel and that there are things that are happening, namely that they're not living in good works because they've forgotten the gospel. Now, I'm a, I'm a generally, I'm a forgetful person. You can ask my children, much less my wife, right? I'm a forgetful person. I don't know about you, and I don't know uh, how, how you forget things, but I, I tend to forget the most important things, right, in my life, right? Uh, and those are not like keys or things like that, right? That's, that's truth that should be deep and abiding in my life. Uh, I forget. But there's, but there's things that Peter is convinced of, okay? And these are the three things that Peter's convinced of. He's convinced of the gospel, verses 22 through 24. He's convinced that God is sovereign and in control, okay? Verses uh, 25 to 28. So secondly, he's convinced that God is sovereign and in control, verses 25 to 28. And then finally, uh, um, he's 
he's convinced that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. 29 through 31. Now, if you know anything about uh, promises, you know that to, to, to be human is to err, right? And constantly, uh, we, we, we seem to have sort of issues with all of this stuff. Let's take the first thing, right? We are, as Christians, instructed to live in the realities of the gospel. I prayed in my prayer a minute ago the, the, the application of the gospel, which is help us to be believing believers and repenting repenters, right? And yet, um, we, we constantly forget that our lives are to be lived in kindness and forgiveness and love, don't we? I mean, each and every day. I mean, this afternoon, you're going to go eat with people, right? Today, you're going to go eat with people. And today, the application is, how do I remember the gospel with people who are unlovable? How do I respect the unrespectable around my table? How am I Christ to them? And, and, and here's, here's, here's one thing. Peter knows the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel. And I'm here to tell you today, if you are not a believer... You believing that Jesus is your substitute and you're, you're placing faith in him, that he took your place, death for death, life for life, okay, punishment for punishment, your faith alone, belief in that, earns you eternal life. doesn't earn you that because you did it. Jesus earned it for you, but he gives it to you and he says, here it is. He says, God is the gospel. Here I am, death, burial, and resurrection. You believe in this. This is your substitute. And Peter preaches that loudly. And of course, he actually accuses them in the middle of preaching it, doesn't he? And he says, you killed him. Now, if I was there, what I would have done, because I do this every day in my family, when people accuse me, I immediately say, no, I didn't. Now, I'm sure you don't do that because you're not a human being, do you? Of course we do, right? Our defenses go up immediately. So I try to put myself in that original audience. But if I was there, what would I have said? I would have said, no, I wasn't. There's a million people in the city. I didn't kill Jesus of Nazareth. I wasn't there. I didn't do it. But it didn't matter to him. He was telling, it didn't matter who was there, who wasn't there, because he wasn't talking about the physical death of Jesus Christ. Peter wasn't. Peter was talking about the rejection of the son of God, which everyone had done in the city, all one million of them that were there for the festival of Passover when Jesus died. So Jesus, so Peter wants them to remember the work of Jesus, which is the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that. Number next, he wants them to know that God is sovereign, right? So he moves into this in verses 25 uh, and forward. Hope, joy, gladness, most of all, um, uh, sovereignty. Uh, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. I may not be shaken. Uh, therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh would also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, for you will um, make me full of gladness at your presence. So what? this is what Peter's doing. Peter is quoting the Old Testament. 
Okay, so he's P- Peter is familiar with the Old Testament. What he's done here in Psalm chapter sixteen, um, most likely as we follow the narrative uh, after the ascension of Jesus. So here's the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is resurrected and stays on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and then he goes and is ascended into heaven. And after that point, the Bible tells us that they meditated on the Scripture probably for somewhere around the number of ten days. And, and this was probably one of the Psalms that he focused on. And so what happens is in the middle of his his sermon, it, 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 it comes out, right? Um, he's, he's got a priority, um, of the Bible. I want us to go back and see where I'm, where I'm getting this sovereignty thing from. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now this is what's happening. Peter is accusing the people of being humanly responsible for killing an innocent man. In the same sentence, he's saying, God planned that. Okay, so if if you don't know uh, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that's what that means, right? So Jesus was part of the plan. His death was a part of the plan. So can, can God do both of these things? Can he invoke human responsibility and divine sovereignty at the same time? Well, of course he can. He's God. Right? And this have to make sense to our feeble minds in order for it to work. And it does. So, so he's, he's preaching a big God who is really able to do big things, right? Who's absolutely in control of the whole mess, right? God has delivered up Jesus. Jesus is on the cross facing not just physical fury, but the full spiritual fury of the wrath of God. And the Bible says in verses 23, that that happened according to God's plan. That is to say that God is in control. So number one, you need to be preaching to yourself and to others the gospel. Number two, you need to be preaching to yourself and others, I serve a God who is in control. Um, Is it fair to say that everyone in the room has formidable control issues? Can I get a witness, please? Can I get a witness? Oh, good. You're honest. This is wonderful. This is a wonderful place to start. Um, yeah, of course we do. All of us do. Um, we, we've had control issues since we were two, right? Anyone have a two-year-old in here? Yes. Yes. All of us have control issues. No matter how old we are or what stage of life we're in, uh, uh, or even for that matter, believer or unbeliever, all of us have control issues. If you're a believer here today, you've been commanded to live your life in the shadow of the great sovereign control of the Almighty. Horribly difficult to wonder about the fact that God has it all in control. People don't want to believe in a God like that. How, how is it that that? that this could happen to me or how, how is it that, that these circumstances are happening in my life? And, and, and if the Bible thunders one truth besides God's love, I would simply say it, it thunders the truth of God's sovereign control, whether you or I estimate that as good or bad, right or wrong. It is definitely clear that if there is a God and there is, he is most certainly in control. He is in control. Uh, And I don't know about you, but my anchor is the great sovereignty of God. I get up in the morning and I know that God is absolutely in control. My mentor who died at 42, celibate, had no family when he died to speak of, um, told me before he died, I know that everything that comes 
to me in my life come through not only sovereign hands as it filters down to me in my life, but it comes down through sovereign hands too, loving and sovereign hands, right? So yes, Peter was preaching a message of gospel, but he was also preaching a big God and friends in this country and in every other country. Our God as, is too small, as J.B. Phillips, the former canon of Westminster Abbey said, and he's right. Our God is too small. He's a God of our own making. We certainly don't have to understand all of him to, to, to get all that. But the truth is, is that we serve a God who is in control. Lastly, uh, we should be preaching to others and to ourselves the fact that we have a promise-keeping God. A promise-keeping God. Um, Verses 29 to 31. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection so that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is, this is what all that means. Um, David was promised an heir on the throne of Israel. Okay, now David, when he's writing in Psalm 16, is probably is probably thinking, "I'm going to have a physical heir." The truth is, if you know anything about biblical history, you know that there was not a physical heir on the throne, was there? There just wasn't. They're exiled in and out. Today, is there one there today? Physically, certainly not. Was there two thousand years ago? Certainly not. Um, but there was a spiritual heir. Right? And that's what this is talking about. And here's the thing. This is, if you know anything about covenant theology, this is Davidic covenant. God promised in the Davidic covenant to always give Israel a leader. Of course, God keeps his promises. Is there a physical sort of king of Israel right now who is on an actual throne uh, geopolitically right now? No, there's not. Has there been for many, many, many hundreds of years? No. Is there actually a king on a throne of Israel? And has there always been? Yes. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the son of David and God keeps good on his promises. Now here's the thing. Um, at work, you may be frustrated because people don't keep promises. Uh, you may be frustrated at home that the people around you don't keep their promises. As a matter of fact, you may ultimately be really just upset at yourself and not even know it for lack of self-awareness, or maybe you do, because you yourself don't keep promises and it's toxic in your life. You need to know that we serve a covenant-keeping God who knows, who knows you who asks you to keep promises upon receiving salvation, but knew that there was no way that you could keep promises to earn yourself the salvation, which is why when he entered a good deal with you, he made nothing about it what was up to you. He saved you, made a deal with you, and said, this is not on you. This is not about promises that you can keep. This is about me keeping my promises, and I'm telling you, I'm going to pay for your death. And I'm going to live your life. And I'm going to do it well. And that's exactly what he did. Adam, come preach God's word to us. All right, let's pick up there in verse 32 and look at the remaining 
portion of this passage. It says, this Jesus that we've just heard about, God raised up and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. To kind of summarize the, the remainder of this passage, what I believe we see here is that Christ's resurrection, which is a historical fact, right? It's not something that we simply believe as something that we hope occurred. There, there's there's uh, sufficient and, and more than sufficient evidence to show us that the resurrection is a historical fact. It reminds me that God controls evil for his greater purposes, giving me great reason to surrender my life to his lordship. There's, there's three points of application that I want to give you as we close out our time in his word. Um, and they're in the form of three points for the remainder of this passage. I want you to remember something this morning. I want you to rejoice about something this morning. And then I want you to respond to what you've heard this morning. We'll start with what we need to remember. We need to first remember that the resurrection is a historical fact. It's a historical fact. It's something that occurred in the past. Um, it's not something that we hope occurs in the future. It's not something that we have uh, simply been taught may have occurred in the past. It's not some type of mythical belief that somebody came up and, and kind of shoved our way and said, believe this, that the historical facts point to this resurrection. It starts by us seeing that Jesus himself is a historical figure, and that's really not disputed by anybody. Um, the, the greatest thinkers, the greatest philosophers, those that, that, that this world would value who want nothing to do with Jesus, don't seek to disprove his existence. They simply try to manipulate his identity, right? Think about some of the, the world religions that are out there that are uh, contrary to Christianity. They say something about Jesus, right? They, they, don't, they don't come from a perspective of, oh, Jesus of Nazareth never existed. They, they say something about him in their religion. They have to, because there, there's no one who really disputes his existence. And so when we think about our faith and our, our resolve to stay faithful to Christ as we await his return, it's banking on historical facts. It's banking on prophecies from the Old Testament that predicted that he would come. It's banking on eyewitness accounts of people who lived when Jesus lived. And then the authoritative word of God that was written after his existence and passed down to us so that we know we know the historical account of Jesus. He's a historical figure, and that's never been really disputed. Number two, his resurrection had more than sufficient witnesses, and that's what Peter tells us here. He says, this Jesus got raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the amount of witnesses who were still alive at that time, people that you could go and talk to that if you questioned whether or not Jesus was, was really raised from the dead, there were people who had seen him. 
people who could testify to the fact that he had come back from the dead. And it radically changes the, the people who follow him lives, right? Like we see Peter here previously is hiding and cowering and, and scared to death to be identified with Jesus. Here he's proclaiming in the very city where Jesus was crucified, right? He's proclaiming the gospel. He's proclaiming truths about Jesus that ultimately would indict him to the same type of punishment, right? Like Jesus was crucified in order to stop his teachings. And here Peter is continuing those teachings, Therefore, we should assume that Peter is now putting himself in position to himself be crucified. And Peter does not care at this point, right? Peter has seen the resurrected Jesus and he is empowered. He is empowered to live differently now. He's empowered to proclaim things differently now because of that belief. And, and the implication from this, this, this one little verse here, this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. The implication for us is that our faith is based on a historical fact that does not change causing my faith to only strengthen rather than waver. So as I grow and mature in my faith and, and I learn to see God's word uh, in light of what the Holy Spirit wants me to see more and more, my faith only strengthens in what initially brought me to Jesus, right? When I was five years old, the gospel was presented to me in a much simpler format than, than even what Peter was doing here to this crowd. But it was very clear to me that I was a sinner and I was in need of a savior, and that it was the resurrected Jesus that could be that savior for me. And, and since that day, my faith has grown. My faith has been strengthened. And my faith has never really wavered in the truths that we're seeing this morning. Even as I've gone through difficult times in my life, even as I have experienced circumstances that I would have never chosen for me and my family, it has not caused my faith to waver because my faith is not grounded in the things that I believe God should do to me or for me. My faith in Jesus is grounded in the fact that I believe he's alive today. And it radically changed the disciples' lives as well to where they too could experience undesired circumstances. I mean, many of them are killed and persecuted for their faith and their faith does not waver, right? They, they don't believe that Jesus offered them some great life here. They believe that he has offered them some great life to come. And so their faith does not waver. And so for us this morning, what I would want you to certainly remember as you leave today is that whatever lies ahead for the rest of this year, for whatever lies ahead for the next five years, 10 years, that your faith should only strengthen rather than waver because your, your, your faith is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. A historical fact, a historical event that cannot be changed, cannot be changed. And all the evidence points to the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised. And at that time, there were plenty of eyewitnesses. Secondly, what I want you to do this morning is I want you to rejoice that God controls evil for good purposes. God controls evil for good purposes. Ryan talked about the sovereignty of God, and we continue to see that theme as we work through this passage. It says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, this is in the context of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit had come upon the disciples and they were being empowered for a unique and special ministry here. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's not here at a memorial service. He's not here to, to remember all the tragic things that happened to Jesus. Now, 
as Ryan said, he addresses the fact that these people are absolutely responsible for the fact that they have crucified their Messiah. But Peter does a great job of helping us to see that this is part of God's plan for the redemption of mankind. That, that evil never overcomes God's plans. That God never has to react to evil and come up with new sets of plans. That he controls evil for his purposes. We see, first of all, that man's evil intent bows to the purposes of God. Man's evil intent bows to the purposes of God. One commentator said, they crucified him, but God had crowned him. They executed him, but God had exalted him. They had entombed him, but God had enthroned him. Everything that Satan and everything that evil thought they were doing to the Messiah, God was working for greater purposes, right? And, and it gives us great faith and strength in the promises of, of passages like Romans eight twenty eight, where we are told that God does the exact same thing in our lives that he takes, he takes evil, he takes circumstances that are undesirable, and he uses them for good in our life. Man's evil intent bows to the purposes of God here. In what should have been a time of celebration for evil, Peter reminds these people what God has done, that he has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We see, secondly, that man's evil heart can be changed by the grace of God. As these people sit and listen and hear, it says they were cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? They cry out to Peter. People who were full of hearts of stone weeks ago, months ago, people who were resistant to the teachings of Jesus, people who were resistant to the movement of Christ, now hear all of the events put together in this gospel package by Peter, and they're cut to the heart. They're, 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 they're being radically changed. They're being opened to things that they previously weren't open to. And we've been talking here at Sovereign Hope in, in, in the Gospel of John, uh, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's talking about the new birth, he's talking about regeneration, he's talking about how salvation comes to an individual. He talks about how the Holy Spirit has to do a, a special work in that individual's heart to draw them to salvation. And that's what's happening in the midst of this crowd here. As they sit and listen, they, they see their handiwork. They see what they have done to their Messiah. And they see how God has used this for greater purposes. That, that he's actually brought them the lamb, the Messiah that they've so longed for, for so many years. Their hearts are cut. Those who had crucified him are now being convicted about him. Rejoice that God controls evil for good purposes. The implication for us is that God took the world's greatest evil and turned it into man's greatest good, reminding me that he's able to do the same in my own life. See, this is why, this is why our faith doesn't have to waver when circumstances are undesirable in our life, right? That that's not the time to run from God, that's the time to run to God, right? Because he's the, he's the resurrected God, he's the resurrected God who brings great hope to us and he takes evil and turns it into good. He turns it into good every single time. Not some of the time, not the majority of the time, but all of the time for his children, he works good in the midst of evil for them. That gives us great hope this morning. Gives us great hope this morning that we are following a Lord and Christ who has defeated death, who has the power and the control 
to turn evil into good for us. I saw a social media post this week where, where a, an individual who would claim to be a Christian and claim to teach authoritatively made, tried to make the point that God is not in control today. That if God were in control, it would look like heaven here on earth. And so therefore God cannot be in control today. And we simply hope for the day when God actually assumes control. That, but for now he has given the world to man and has, has limited his control and allows man to control things, and one day we'll, we'll regain that control. I'm thankful that I do not get up today with man being in control of anything regarding my life, right? I'm so thankful that, that, that uh, my president doesn't control my life. My boss at work doesn't control my life, right? That, that nobody controls my life, that they are all in submission to God. Every single authority in submission to God. That's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that he uses evil he takes evil. He's not the source of evil, but he takes evil and uses it for good purposes. The Lord blessed my family with our uh, fourth child this week. Um, and it's been a long two years because me and, me and my wife kept talking about the fact that I feel like she's been pregnant for, for two years because we had two miscarriages in the midst of having our fourth child. So it feels like we've been pregnant for, forever. Um, and so we just kept looking forward to the day that, that God would grant us this fourth child. And um, we had, our, we had uh, Apollos on uh, Monday. Um, and for those of you that are not part of our church, that sounds like a funny name, but I've been telling my church family for years that we were going to name our next son Apollos. And so um, we named him Apollos. And, and the first thought that I had when I held him, first thought that I had that came to my mind was that if it weren't for the other two miscarriages, this child wouldn't be here today right? That, that I certainly wouldn't choose him over the other two children that are in heaven with Jesus right now. But it was just a quick reminder to me that if the other two miscarriages had not occurred, I would not be holding this child today. And I began to think about what God has in store for him down the road, things that he is going to do, people that he is going to interact with. And my prayer, people that he will share the gospel with, that will come to know Jesus, that God took bad, God took evil, God took the results of sin, the death of two of my children, and worked good in giving me the child that I hold today. And that's been true in every circumstance that I found myself in. Things that I would not choose for myself or for my family, God uses for good purposes. He is in control, and Peter is very quick to point to that control. And he looks at these people and says, you did not control the events. Yes, you're responsible for crucifying Jesus. But the Jesus that you crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ. Which leads me to point number three, the, the response piece here. And I think sometimes those of us that have grown up in church, those of us that have been to countless services, countless Easter services, we, we, we expect that the sermon today is going to be gospel-focused, and we expect that that sermon is then for others who are not believers. What we're learning in the Gospel of John through our study as, as a church here is that Jesus' disciples continue to repent and continue to believe Jesus as he reveals himself more and more. That absolutely salvation is a one-time occurrence in our life where we cross from death to life, but as I told you earlier, our faith should be strengthening as we grow and mature. And so the way that the New Testament talks about this, the way that the Gospel of John talks about this is his disciples believed again in Jesus. And so my, my call to you this morning would be not to tune out this last part because you're already a Christian, 
but to use the things that you're hearing this morning to, to believe again, to believe further, to believe deeper in the gospel truth that rescued you from death to life. And then obviously for those here this morning that may not be a believer, that you for the first time, my prayer would be that the Holy Spirit would penetrate your heart and cut into you and help you to see that it's your sin that crucified Jesus as well. And that we have a response, a responsibility to respond in faith and repentance and obedience. We see here that Jesus is Lord and demands our obedience. The passage that Peter quotes from here is from Psalm 110 and verse 34. It says, for David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy footstool. I don't have time to go into the, the depths of this passage. It's one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. Jesus uses it in Matthew chapter 22 to show his deity to the Pharisees. This passage shows us that Jesus is Lord, that he has authority, which demands our obedience to him. He is Lord and demands our obedience. But number two, we fail to obey him and therefore have need to repent. They're cut to the heart here because they realize what they've done. And the people cry out to Peter, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells them to repent. And then number three, he calls them to baptism as a first step of obedience as a, an expression of their desire to follow him. Now, lest we get confused here and lest we go into panic mode because some of you may be sitting here and say, oh, I haven't been baptized yet, that, that baptism is not what saves us. First Peter is clear about the fact that getting into a pool of water and, and washing the outward body does not save. First Peter 3.21 Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At some point in church history, we went from calling people to baptism as an expression of their faith to please come down and, and, and say a prayer with me as an expression of your faith. Right? What, what, what the earliest expression of, of, of faith was in the New Testament was to say, I want Jesus, and I want to show you that through baptism. Baptism was the step that showed something had already occurred internally in that individual. And so when he says, when he says I want you to repent and be baptized, he's not telling them that the actual act of being in the water is what will save them. He's simply calling them to express this cut up heart that they have, this desire to repent, this desire to believe anew and afresh in this Jesus. And so Peter calls them to this, tells them to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. He then goes on to say, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you continue to read through this passage, you see here at the end that 3,000 of them get saved. And then first, verse 42 and on, you begin to see what life looks like now that they've been saved. You begin to see a picture of what life looks like with the Holy Spirit living inside of people. There, there's an unbelievable expression of love, unity, generosity, things that are meant to describe the body of Christ. 
And so it's a reminder to us as an implication from this section that with the Holy Spirit living in us, we should live differently now as a witness to the gospel's power. And so this is a chance for all of us to step back and say, where do I need to repent in my own life? Where am I failing to live out the gospel's power in my own life? Because we are meant to be an expression of the gospel to all that we come in contact with. An attitude of love and unity and generosity that with those that we work with, with those that we live near, with those that we play with, with our hobbies, they should see a difference in our life because the Holy Spirit lives there. And so Peter calls these people to repent, to be baptized, to, to receive the Holy Spirit, and to live new in obedience to the risen Lord. Some final thoughts that I want to leave you with from this passage is that we need to expect for God to do the impossible when it comes to saving souls. For many of us today, we're already believers. For many of us today, we have people in our life that are not. And for many of us, we don't hold out a whole lot of hope that God's going to save those people in our life. I mean, if we're just honest, some of us have attempted to share the gospel with a family member or a friend or a coworker, and, and we were met with some type of rebuttal, some type of rebuke, some type of rejection. And so if we went around, if we had time this morning, we went around and we said, list off some people in your life that you're closest to that you know are not believers. All of us could make a list very quickly. And all of us could probably make a list very quickly of those that we, we seriously question and doubt and wonder if they'll ever become a believer. This passage feels so much like the story of Jonah to me. We talked through the book of Jonah several years ago. Jonah came to address a group of people who had been harsh to his people. And he came and shared the gospel in hopes that God would condemn these people, that God would wipe Nineveh out. And instead, they too cried out and said, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to respond to this gospel message? Imagine Peter, it's only because he's been transformed by the Holy Spirit that he would not preach this message and hope they would reject it so that they could get what they deserved. They crucified his friend. They crucified his savior. They crucified his master. But the Holy Spirit has changed Peter's heart to where he wants to see these people, this guilty party, come to know him, come to know Jesus like he's come to know him. And so Peter has a completely different response than Jonah. He, 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 he is very uh, excited about the response that these people have. He continues to preach to them. He continues to exhort them, continues to cry out to them to save themselves from this crooked generation. Expect God to do the impossible when it comes to saving souls. He saved the people in Nineveh. He saved the very people who crucified Jesus. Number one, he can save those that we least expect. Peter identifies at least some of these people in the crowd here as those who would have been present who participated in the call to crucify Jesus. And here, months later, they are being converted and changed. He can save those that we least expect. Number two, he can save us from our worst sins. I missed this the first time that I was reading through it, and then a commentator drew my attention to the fact that Peter tells them what to do individually, and then he gives them this great hope, verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
right? The, the obvious piece there is that, hey, this is for Jews and Gentiles, right? It's for, for the Jews and then also for those who are afar off, which is, which is great news for all of us that are Gentiles in here that are not of Jewish background, right? But he throws in this piece about your children. And I don't know if, if people in the, I, I feel pretty certain that people in the, the, the crowd at this point would have connected the fact that it wasn't that long ago Matthew 27, 25, when they are calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus and Pilate's hesitant, he doesn't want the responsibility of this laying on him. He feels like Jesus has some level of innocence to him, right? And what do the people cry out? Let his blood be on our hands and our children's hands for doing this, right? Like they seemingly condemn their own children for their sinful act. Hey, we'll take responsibility for this act and we'll even make our children take responsibility for this act. What does Peter do? Peter comes in and says, you can be saved, those of you that crucified Jesus. And on your worst day, when you threw your children under the bus, this is for your children too. They don't have to take responsibility for your actions. They don't have to bear the blood of Jesus upon them. They too can be saved. His grace runs that wide. His grace runs that deep. And then number three, he can save more than we can expect. I don't know about you, but if I heard a report that 3,000 people got saved at a church this morning, my first thought would be to doubt it. I just, I, I, I just, I'm just being honest with you. I don't always expect Jesus to do today what I've seen him do in the, in, the, in, the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. But man, let us be reminded today that Jesus can do far more than we can expect when it comes to salvation. He can save people that we would least expect him to ever be able to save. Right? He can save people from their worst sins, which is a great reminder to those of us in here that may not be a believer today, that you may be not a believer because you believe that your past would withhold you from God's grace. And that's not the case because the people who committed the greatest crime in history had God's grace extended to them. He can save us from our worst sins and he can save far more people than we would ever expect as well. As we leave today, remember that the resurrection is a historical fact. It'll help you weather the storms of life. It'll help strengthen your faith rather than cause it to waver. Rejoice today that God controls evil for good purposes. No matter what you face this week, no matter what you face in the coming months, no matter what evil circumstances you encounter, God can use those for good in your life, and he will. And then number three, respond in faith, repentance, and obedience this morning whether you're already a believer or not. The call is always for us to continually repent and believe more in him. Not because we need to be saved daily. But because God wants us to know him in a deeper way. And so we can believe him more and experience him in a greater way as we trust him more and more with our lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the chance to celebrate the resurrection today. God, we do it every Sunday. Today's the day, though, that it reminds us that we are celebrating something that happened historically. In much the same way that we celebrate people's birthdays, in the same way that we mourn the death of family and friends as a historical day in our past, God, we remember today that Jesus rose from the dead. that it's more than a story, it's more than a sermon. It's a part of history. 
And what we've learned is that history can't be changed. We can't change the past. And so God, we celebrate this morning that Jesus rose from the dead and Satan can do nothing to counteract that. God, I pray that our faith would be strengthened this morning, remembering that our faith is towards a historical fact. An event that you prophesied, an event that you planned before the foundations of the world. God, help us to see that in the midst of evil intent, that the greatest good for mankind was occurring behind the scenes. Father, we praise you and thank you that you are in control today and that you work good in the midst of evil every single time for your children. God, I pray for anybody that's not a child of yours today, that is not a believer, that you would cut their hearts open this morning and expose their sin and call them to repentance and faith in you. God, help them to see that you can save them out of the worst sins possible. God, help us as believers to believe that you're still capable of doing that today. As we leave today, as we go back into our normal routines, as we encounter people who are not believers, God, help us to approach people and expect the unexpected. Help us to proclaim the gospel in a way where we believe that you still desire to save. God, we thank you for our own salvation this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. As we close today, we want to give you the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. So I want to read to you briefly from 1 Corinthians 11, and then we'll partake and we'll sing one closing song. What an appropriate way to to end our Easter service by partaking of the Lord's Supper. Paul gives us instructions in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We've got people from different churches here this morning, and so it's always helpful to to, uh, maybe explain very briefly uh, what it is that we're doing here this morning. In, In partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are doing what we're called to do here, and that's to remember to remember Jesus, to remember his work, to remember his perfect life that's represented through the bread, to remember his blood that was shed for our sins, which is represented through the juice. And to do so as an act of continued faith, that we are essentially publicly showing that we are still believing in Jesus. That after a rough week, after a difficult week, we are still saying yes to Jesus. And so we do that here at Sovereign Hope and as many churches do in this area as an expression of our faith, as a public reminder that we are still saying yes to Jesus. We do believe this is something for believers. And so we would invite all of our believers this morning to partake with us and to do it with an attitude of longing and waiting for Jesus to come back. Paul says, we eat this bread, we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. And he is coming back. He's not dead. He's, 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 he's living. We celebrate that this morning. So we want to invite you to celebrate that with us together today. Uh, churches do the Lord's Supper differently. Um, just for those that are visiting with us this morning, um, we do have the bread and the juice in the back. And what we do here is we tear from the bread and we dip it in the cup uh, in an attempt to show the unity of the fact that we are all pulling from the same body and drinking from the same uh, sacrificial blood of Christ. And so um, we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and eat, and then you can uh, take your seat once again. And so I'm going to pray for us again. 
give you a chance to, to pause and reflect, um, to, to celebrate, to worship on your own, uh, in your own seat. And then as the Lord leads for you to dismiss yourself to the back and partake, Tyson's going to come and have some music playing. And then we're going to sing a closing song um, as a celebration of what we've talked about this morning. God, again, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus is everything that we can't be, that he's perfect. And because of that, he's able to absorb your wrath for us. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you that he rose again. And God, we are looking forward to the day that Jesus returns. Help us to continue to say yes to Jesus as we wait for that day. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, or hear more like this, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com.